0: Happy Saturday, everybody. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. An interesting headline caught my eye this week. It was that the Icelandic Coast Guard vessel Ayr is being sold after 50 years of service. It's being sold because it has fallen into disuse over the last couple of years. And this headline caught my eye not just because I've been really, really nostalgic for a trip I took to Iceland a few years back, but also because this vessel played a major part in the Cod Wars which took place between Iceland and the UK.
1: Our previous episode on the Cod Wars came out on October 3rd, 2016, and this news gave us a good excuse to put it right back into everybody's feeds. So enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to the
0: podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. When I was in Iceland back in the spring, I learned a very tiny bit about the Cod Wars. Uh, Long-time listeners to the show will probably notice some similarities between the thing that we're going to talk about today and the Chesapeake Bay Oyster Wars, which we talked about back in 2013. But while the Chesapeake Bay conflict was mostly confined to the states of Virginia and Maryland, the Cod Wars were an international dispute that wound up having a lot more long lasting ramifications in both the United Kingdom and in Iceland. So after I got home from the strip where I learned that the Cod Wars had happened, I put them on a potential episode list. And then all of a sudden over the last week or so, multiple other people sort of apropos of nothing said, Hey, would you talk about the Cod Wars? Um, And that included most recently Gemma and Steve. So I thought, okay, I guess I'll put Cod Wars at the top of the list. It had been kind of languishing there and now we're going to do it. Uh, I do want to be clear that this is definitely not the only fishing dispute that has ever happened in these particular waters, but it's definitely one of the most famous. Uh, And in some ways it's the weirdest and the most comical, even though it was not actually funny to the people it was happening to. Like It sounds funny, but a lot of people's livelihoods were deeply at stake in the middle
1: of this thing that sounds sort of comedic. So... To give you the setup, Iceland and the United Kingdom are two relatively small island nations. The UK is a little more than 94,000 square miles, and Iceland is a little less than 40,000 square miles. That's about 243,000 square kilometers and 103,000 square kilometers, respectively. The UK, however, has much more habitable land than Iceland does. The middle of Iceland is mountainous and it's covered in glaciers and also in many places volcanic. So nearly all of its population lives relatively close to the coast.
0: It is completely unsurprising that two relatively small island nations, one of which is only really habitable along the coastline, have historically relied on fishing, both as an industry and for the nation's cuisine. As we discussed in our podcast about the volcanic eruption on the island of Hämé, fishing is critically important to Iceland's economy. Today the fishing industry in Iceland employs about 11,000 people which is a little more than 4% of Iceland's total workforce and the fishing industry directly contributes to about 11% of Iceland of the Icelandic GDP and indirectly a full quarter of Iceland's GDP about 40% of Iceland's export earnings come from fish today with cod being a primary export And before the 1970s, almost 90% of Iceland's exports were fish.
1: Meanwhile, Britain's fishing industry employs a little under 12,000 fishers today, so about the same size as Iceland's industry. But because the UK's population and economy are so much larger, it's really a much smaller proportion of the UK economy as a whole. The U.K. has a population of 64 million, compared to 323,000 in Iceland. Marine fishing is about uh, 0.05% of the British GDP, and all forms of fishing together make up about 0.07% of the British GDP.
0: Prior to the 1950s, though, fishing was a much bigger part of the British economy, especially in fishing port cities like Hull, Grimsby, and Fleetwood. In these ports, fishing trawlers were the primary employer, and most of the fishing fleet that sailed from these ports did what's known as distant water fishing. So boats would leave these ports in Britain, and they would travel hundreds of miles to fish in the waters around Iceland.
1: In addition to catching a lot of cod, Britain ate, and continues to eat for that matter, a lot of cod. In the 1950s and 1960s, 430,000 tons of cod were being eaten in Britain annually, overwhelmingly in the form of fish and chips. Britain continues to eat more cod than anywhere else in the world. A third of the cod in the world, and 85% of the cod caught in European waters. So yeah,
0: the... (laughs) Iceland and Britain were united by the fact that there's lots of cod around Iceland and Britain was eating
1: so much of it. Almost all of it.
0: (laughs) Almost all the cod Uh, because fish and chips. I mean, it's it's delicious and also kind of astounding just how much was being eaten. Another important piece of background information in all of this story has to do with the idea of international waters and how nations get to decide which parts of the ocean are theirs. The idea that a nation with a coastline has rights to a certain amount of the ocean around it has existed for centuries, and a nation's territorial waters extend a certain distance past its coast, and then beyond that are international waters, Starting in the 1700s, in Europe and the Americas, a nation's territorial waters typically extended about three miles past the coastline, although there were definitely exceptions with nations claiming more or
1: less. Prior to its independence in 1944, Iceland was a part of Denmark. And according to the Anglo-Danish Territorial Waters Agreement, it, like so many other nations, followed that three-mile limit. That agreement was set to expire in 1951. But when Iceland became independent from Denmark, it got to work setting its own terms for where other nations could fish immediately.
0: Iceland had two primary motivations for re-evaluating its fishing boundaries— one was that fishing was so enormously critical to its own economy that it wanted to make sure its own fishing fleet had the greatest advantage. Iceland sort of viewed this situation as a zero-sum game. Other nations that were taking fish out of the waters around Iceland were taking them from Iceland because Iceland had so few other industries or, nat- or natural resources to-, to add to its economy The other was that Iceland was becoming increasingly concerned about the health of the fish stocks around it and the threat of overfishing. So banning other nations from fishing closer to its shores was a way to try to keep Icelandic fishers fishing while ideally
1: lowering the risk of depleting those fish populations. As a result, on May 15th of 1952, Iceland extended the line from three miles to four and this wasn't the first push of its territorial water since becoming independent, but it was the first extension that affected a part of the sea that Britain had been using for its fishing.
0: Yeah, some of the prior extension was more to the north, which was not as much of a British fishing ground. Uh, Britain was not happy about this change. There was more shelter available in bad weather three miles out compared to four miles out. Uh, And then, of course, there was just the principle of the thing. Britons who had been making their livelihoods through fishing for generations and who lived in port cities where fishing was the biggest industry were basically being shut out of a strip of the sea that they'd historically
1: had access to. When Iceland set its new line at four miles, flags flew at half-mast in British distant water fishing ports. The Grimsby Evening Telegraph called it Black Thursday. In spite of this new law, the four-mile zone around Iceland did
0: not make that big of a difference to British distant distant water fishing boats. A lot of them had already been crossing the three-mile line when fish were scarce beyond it. A number of captains and owners also thought that the fine that came with crossing that four-mile line was worth the risk if it meant better fishing on the other side of the line.
1: All in all, even though there was a bit of cat and mouse darting around the line, British captains and crews surrendered when they realized they were caught. And Icelandic Coast Guard personnel were always honest and fair in court cases over illegal fishing. Aside from some tomfoolery, people on both sides of this dispute were generally respectful and professional about it.
0: Yeah, in, in spite of all the like the, the flying the flags at half-mast and the Skittering back and forth across the line where people weren't really supposed to be, you know, when the Coast Guard showed up and was like, you're not supposed to be here. They would be like, yeah, you're you got us. (laughs) (laughs) The UK also took the very reasonable course of action of taking their dispute with Iceland before the International Court of Justice. When Iceland's four-mile limit was upheld, Britain responded by banning Icelandic fishing vessels from landing their fish in Britain. Since Britain, as we said earlier, was buying most of Iceland's cod, and I mean, British, British cod catches were not nearly enough to keep the nation supplied in fish and ships. This basically was an economic sanction against
1: Iceland, but Iceland did not back down. And this was only the first of several times that Iceland would move its fishing boundary. And we're going to talk about where things stopped being so sort of cordial and respectful and started to really get ugly after we have uh, a brief sponsor break.
0: In 1958, the international community participated in the first international conference on the law of the sea. The UN's International Law Commission had been discussing and evaluating maritime international law for nearly a decade. But this was the first conference that was specifically devoted to international maritime law. 86 states participated in this conference.
1: Fishing, we should point out, was certainly not the only thing being discussed at the conference. Resolutions were adopted regarding nuclear tests, radioactive pollution of the oceans, and conservation. And various smaller nations suggested a major expansion of the commonly used three-mile limit between international and territorial waters. The new proposed limit, a 12-mile economic exclusion zone around a nation's coast. Most larger nations resisted this idea for reasons ranging from economic unfairness to concerns that their navies could not effectively maneuver or patrol with that much of the sea off limits.
0: However, when Iceland then expanded its exclusionary zone to 12 miles in 1958, part of its argument was that that 12 miles was eventually going to be
1: international law anyway. And while that previous move from three miles to four miles had been met with flags at half mast in Britain's port towns, the jump to 12 miles was genuinely alarming. The zone between four and 12 miles from Iceland's coast was prime fishing territory for Britain's distant water fishing fleet. Shutting Britain out of 12 miles around Iceland had the potential to completely disrupt the fishing industry. Aside from really genuine
0: concerns about the British economy, especially in these port cities, Britain was also really frustrated on principle. I understand this. I'm a person who gets colossally frustrated on principle. As had been the case with that four-mile line, the 12-mile line was cutting Britain out of waters that it had historically had access to and felt entitled to. And then there was an emotional weight to all of it. In the cities that were home to Britain's distant water fishing fleets, fishing was really at the heart of the community and of people's identities. So pushing out distant water fishing felt like it was stripping people of their way of life and of something that they felt like was a core part of who they were. Also, there's the whole fish and ship thing again. <laughs> Which is <laughs> also part fish- of like
1: the identity issue.
0: Yes like i in the united states fish and chips in a lot of places they're just like they're just sort of standard pub food right but in in the 50s and 60s in britain fish and chips was really a working class staple and like chippies were places that that sold fish and chips and they, like there's a whole cultural layer to the existence <laughs> and the consumption of of fish and chips that um does not have the quite the same weight in most of the United States,
1: yeah,, uh, and the u k was not the only nation affected by this expansion in Iceland's territorial waters. Belgium, West Germany, and the Faroe Islands were among the other nations fishing in that same area. But it was the British fishing fleet that was making the most use of it among the international community. And it was Britain that became the most vocal in wanting continued access to that 4 to 12 mile zone. Those
0: cat and mouse shenanigans that had happened at the 4 mile line kicked up several notches in the 4 to 12 mile zone around Iceland. As one might expect, Iceland deployed its Coast Guard to try to enforce the policy And it allowed officials to board British ships and arrest their crews for
1: fishing in waters where they were not supposed to be. In response, Britain deployed ships from the Royal Navy to protect the trawlers, essentially mandating that the trawlers fish in areas where the Royal Navy was patrolling. And the trawlers used nets to try to keep Icelandic inspectors from boarding, as well as spraying boarding parties with hoses and trying to use spears to puncture the rubber dinghies the Coast Guard used for boarding.
0: When a trawler was boarded, they'd often call in the Royal Navy to assist. And on at least one occasion, the Royal Navy then refused to let the Icelandic Coast Guard officials go back to their own vessel. It instead kept them on board as guests in quotation marks of the crown. One boarding party was eventually put into a little boat off the coast of Keflavik and allowed to row back to shore there. And this really irritated the people that were, uh, were working at the NATO base in Keflavik because they were like, what do you mean? There is a British warship right there that just dropped (laughs) you off in the water.
1: (laughs) Because Iceland had about six gunboats compared to the 37 Royal Navy ships that Britain had deployed, Iceland didn't really feel comfortable making a direct assault on the British force. Instead, Iceland kept thorough records of the names and numbers of all of the British ships that broke the 12-mile limit. I kind of love fighting it with bureaucracy, and I don't even understand why.
0: (laughs) Yeah. it. Yeah. This dispute wound up being settled with a compromise in 1961. Britain ultimately agreed to respect the 12-mile limit in exchange for a three-year period to phase out the distant water fishing in the 12-mile zone. Once this agreement was reached, Iceland destroyed all those records of who all had been illegally fishing in the 12-mile zone, which I also am kind of charmed by.
1: Yes, it's like this is going on your permanent record. Okay, now we're cool. We could get rid of that permanent record. (laughs) Uh, In the agreement, Iceland also acknowledged that it would continue to consider extending the border even further, but would give Britain advance notice if this were to happen. Quote, the Icelandic government will continue to work for the implementation of the Althing Resolution of 5 May 1959 regarding the extension of fisheries jurisdiction around Iceland, but shall give to the United Kingdom government six months notice of such extension, and in case of a dispute in relation to such extension, the matter shall, at the request of either party, be referred to the International Court of Justice. Yes, yeah, so that was
0: basically referring to a, a, a resolution that had been put out a couple years before about possibly having an even bigger exclusion zone. And then on July fourteenth of nineteen seventy one, the government of Iceland released a new policy statement which said, "quote The fisheries agreements with the United Kingdom and the Federal German Republic shall be terminated, and a resolution be made about an extension of the fishery limit up to." 50 nautical miles from the baselines effective not later than 1 september 1972 so at this point we've gone from three miles to four miles to 12 miles to 50 miles
1: yeah it's a big jump i can imagine if you are part of the fishing industry uh the knee-jerk reaction could be irate at that point Uh, And that would explain why this is where things got really, really heated between the UK and Iceland. The United Kingdom once again took its dispute to the International Court of Justice in The Hague, which found in Britain's favor. But Iceland argued that the court did not have jurisdiction. Iceland was at this
0: point incredibly frustrated and alarmed over the condition of its fishing stocks. Stocks of the Icelandic herring had dropped precipitously, almost to nothing. And Iceland was concerned that cod were headed for the same fate. They had made repeated calls for international discussions on conservation of fish stocks and sustainable fishing practices. And none of that had gotten enough attention for Iceland to really feel secure in the future uh, of, of a nation that was basically dependent on fishing. Like at this point, and even still today in a lot of ways, if the, if the fishing industry in Iceland is gone, Iceland as a nation cannot survive. And so you know, even though there were some nations that were willing to talk about more uh, conservation-oriented fishing practices, at this point in the 70s, Iceland was like, no, really,
1: we will die as a nation if we don't look after these fish. And to make matters worse, from the British point of view, also in 1972, the United Kingdom joined the Common Market. And this was basically an approach by the European Economic Community that gave all its members equal access to the territorial waters of all the other members after a grace period. Iceland not being a member of the European Economic Community was not affected but the UK was concerned about what it would mean for its own fishing industry to give the rest of the European Economic Community access to its fishing grounds the UK to the UK fishing fleet those waters off the coast of Iceland became even more important So the
0: UK once again deployed the Royal Navy to protect its distant water trawlers. And during the previous dispute, the trawlers were basically supposed to stick with the Navy. And now they were trying to do it the other way around. The trawlers would go where they they needed to fish,
1: and the Navy would follow them to protect them. In other words, the UK had decided not to respect that 50-mile line. And we're going to talk about the fallout from that. A little bit more after we once again pause for a word from a sponsor.
0: The first day that British ships made their way across the newly established 50 mile line around Iceland, they covered up their names and numbers on their ships and hoisted uh, pirate flags. Iceland's Coast Guard was mostly amused at this course of action because at this point they had been patrolling these waters with these British trawlers for years. And they were sort of like, do you think we really can't recognize your ship without the name on it? Like, we know what your ship looks like. We know who you are. It's the Clark Kent glasses
1: disguise of the sea. It was absolutely the Clark Kent glasses disguise of the sea. It really is. And this time around, things really did start, though. As much as we're laughing now, uh, they became very serious and physical between Iceland and the UK. Toward the end of the previous dispute, Iceland had developed a trawling net cutter. And this was essentially a minesweeper modified with a road grading blade that was dragged through the water behind a boat. So when it hit the high tension trawling wires, it would cut right through them. This was the part
0: I learned at a museum in Iceland where I was like, whoa, Uh the, the Icelandic Coast Guard was just cutting through trawling nets. That's fascinating. However... The crews of the British trawlers were horrified and alarmed at this invention. The wires of these trawling nets, I mean, these are enormous nets that are under the water and they fill up with fish. They are under a whole lot of tension. So it was within the realm of possibility that a wire that had been cut could rebound and literally cut someone in half. Iceland insisted that this cutting was happening far enough below the surface of the water that this was not a risk and there wasn't a risk to human life because all of this energy that was being dissipated when the wire was cut basically was was dissipated in the traveling through the water. Um, even so, even if if there wasn't a risk, and I think you can argue that either way, the loss of the trawling net itself and of the time and energy that you had put into... P- putting it together and deploying it and whatever time you had spent fishing with it uh, basically meant that people were, were losing a lot of work and equipment in this process.
1: The Icelandic coast guard was vastly outnumbered. It had six coast guard vessels plus two Polish built trawlers retrofitted for the purpose Britain, on the other hand, had a total of 29 ships earmarked for the purpose, with six to nine of them in Icelandic water at any given time. In addition to those frigates were seven supply ships, nine tugboats, and three artillery ships to protect its 40 trawlers. Soon, in spite of being so
0: heavily outnumbered, Icelandic vessels started intentionally ramming British Royal Navy ships and trawlers. This actually, there was one collision that did lead to the death of an Icelandic officer. Britain responded by trying to update its trawler fleet by radio about the positions of Iceland's vessels. So the Icelandic Coast Guard started recording Britain's transmissions on the positions of where the Icelandic vessels were and then replaying them at a later date to sow confusion. When Britain realized that that was happening, their ships began to spread the word by radio to disregard the prior message. So the Icelandic Coast Guard recorded that
1: too to replay it later on. It's a little Ghost Army-esque at that point where they're doing like these false soundscapes. May 26, 1973, an Icelandic ship shelled a British trawler. Also in May, Iceland banned British planes from landing at Keflavik Air Base. That October, the UK and Iceland finally agreed to limit the number of British ships in Icelandic waters, limit the size of the catch, and, thankfully, stop ramming each other.
0: So this is kind of an uneasy peace that lasted for a couple of years, but in 1975, Iceland extended its maritime border again to 200 miles. So now we've gone (laughs) 3, 4, 12, 50, 200 once again, Britain refused to, res- uh, to respect yet another expansion in the exclusionary zone around Iceland. Negoti- negotiations really quickly broke down. Iceland threatened to close the NATO base at Keflavik entirely and to end diplomatic relations with Britain. The international community became really alarmed. All of these conflicts were running parallel to the Cold War, and there were some concerns that Iceland, which was strategically placed between Russia and North America might, under all of this pressure and resistance from Britain, just abandon its other diplomatic ties in favor of allying with Russia.
1: Eventually, after numerous rammings and even some shelling caused damage to ships on both sides of the conflict, the Secretary General of NATO, Dr. Joseph Lunds, had to mediate an agreement between Iceland and the UK, and that was signed in June of 1976. It upheld Iceland's 200-mile exclusion zone, and it specified that Britain could have a maximum of 24 trawlers in that zone at any given time. Conservation zones were established where no fishing would be allowed. And after six months, there would be no more fishing in the 200-mile zone.
0: When those six months were up, Britain's distant water fishing fleet was effectively put out of business. Trawler owners were given some restitution for the loss of their businesses. And the government had reassured the distant water fishing industry to expect retraining for other work, as well as compensation for basically having been made redundant. However, that support did not actually materialize. In 1983, Britain's Fishermen's Association was formed to start fighting for compensation, and this was a battle that went on until July of 2000, when a settlement of 26 million pounds was uh, was earmarked for people who had been put out of work as a consequence of this international agreement.
1: Fish stocks began to be depleted anyway, with Iceland needing to send boats farther afield, which turned into conflict with other nations as well, particularly Russia and Norway.
0: Yeah, those stocks have rebounded a lot now. But if if you look at charts of the fish populations around Iceland, there's like a decline over the 60s and then a cliff. And then they are very alarmingly low and then they start to recover. Uh, There's also a documentary. It was actually an Icelandic documentary, but it aired on the BBC and one of the Icelandic officials that was interviewed for it talked about going to Britain, visiting some of these ports that had been the distant water fishing ports, seeing all of these decommissioned ships just sort of derelict there in the port. uh, And it reconfirming for him, okay, seriously, we have got to, we have got to conserve our fishing stocks because as a result of our trying to do that, all of these people were put out of work and lost their livelihoods, um, which I like I thought was a an interesting sentiment to come back to you, because at, at that point it was years after the decisions had all been made.
1: I like the part with the pirate flags. That's my pi- favorite part. Well, and there's
0: also there were things about like the British ships basically throwing potatoes at people. Uh, <laughs> At, I mean, at the at the Icelandic ships. So the this documentary documentary is really super interesting because you hear from people who were who were on these ships and were, uh, were making living, making their living fishing, uh, and it really does seem like, especially through the first the first couple of incidents where it moved from three miles to four and from four to twelve, that there was kind of a weird spirit of camaraderie, <laughs> where. Where the British uh, the British fishermen would be like, "Uh, yeah, we're going to do this anyway and also throw potatoes at you. And Iceland was like, that's not cool, but we're going to totally be fair when we arrest you and take you to court for your uh, unsanctioned (laughs) fishing activities. Um, It definitely, though, just just ruined the economy of some particular port cities. And then when you look at Britain's fishing industry today, it is completely different. Than it was up through 1970, and also a lot of the fish that used to be uh, used to be fished through distant water fishing fleets are instead now uh, raised through aquaculture. So they're basically farmed instead of um, having this whole international agreement to to send trawlers to other international waters to try to fish. Yeah. Phew.